Live from the Coachella Valley, time for another hour of the desert scene, art exhibitions to modernism, music festivals to live theater, big screen, little screen, and very little screen. This is the Culture Corner with Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. And we're back for a second hour of the Culture Corner. I'm really thrilled to uh, welcome to the show on the phone again, uh, Jason Hull, who is a um, wonderful singer. He, he is he calls himself a renaissance man, which I love. I call myself a renaissance woman because we wear a lot of hats. So he is an actor, singer, playwright, novelist, and he's got a lot of stuff going on. Hey, just, Jason, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. So you've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, so you have your first novel. You're working on the book you're working on now. Is that your second actual book or is it more than that? Uh, it is the second novel and uh, it will be, as long as things continue moving in the direction that they are, uh, it will be sort of a 15 years later follow up to the first one. Um, which I was not initially planning for it to be, but I discovered my characters had more to say. Okay, what, and what was the name of the first one? Remind me. The first one is called Sand Drawings. Okay. Uh, like drawing in the sand. Okay. And uh, it was a project that I began sort of on a lark in 2001, and had no idea that it would take me 15 years before I could literally hold the published copy in my hand. Um, but it is uh, a story of a man who loses his partner, the love of his life, uh, in a tragic uh, happenstance on the night of their fifth anniversary mm-hmm. and goes into a self-imposed isolation for two years and then through a series of synchronicities meets someone who sort of awakens something inside him that he thought had died. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the book is is a will they or won't they? Mm. Will he be able to get past the survivor's guilt and um, the the feelings that he's betraying his, his deceased partner? Uh, may have to move on with someone new, and will the someone new find the patience uh, and needed to to give him that space, or will he just say you've got too much emotional baggage? I'm gone. Yeah. Okay. And so what's and what's so that's it's continuation of the story of these two in the second book. Yes. The sec- the second book uh, is is going to pick up about twelve to fifteen years later uh, in the lives of several of the characters. And um, as I said, that's that was not my intent for a second novel. I was going to to start with something completely new, but. After having lived with these characters talking in my head for 15 years, mm-hmm. um, I, I, all of a sudden they they had just become such a part of me and such a part of my life um, that at, I realized that the end of the first novel wasn't really their ending. It was more like a beginning for, for a lot of these characters, and um, they kept pushing and pushing for something more. And so when I sat down to start writing the next novel, I I had two or three false starts and I kept coming back to these characters saying, I want to know what happened to them. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I want to know where they would be 15 years later because the first novel is set in um, 1999. Okay. So. And what's the title of the second one? Do you have a title the yet? The second one uh, is going to be called Desert Skies. Okay. And um, I, I, 
I'm working on it now. I've been working on it since since I finished the first one uh, and published it about three years ago. I don't know how long it's going to take. When when I, I'm writing a book, I don't put a deadline on myself. Now, when I write for the theater, which I do pretty frequently, um, I tend to have a deadline that I can work fairly well under deadline pressure. But with a novel, that's sort of a luxury I allow myself mm-hmm. not to have to, to finish it by X date. So it's... Yeah. With the book, with the book, it's done when it's done. I'd love to ask writers this. I write a little bit. I've got a book that is going to probably take years. But um, are you someone who disciplines yourself and says, "Okay, today I'm going to sit down and write from ten to two, and not, you know," or do you just write when the inspiration hits you? I write uh, more more when inspiration hits me. I I would love to be able to say, "I'm going to sit down. And I'm going to to turn on my creative switch and let it mm-hmm. flow." Well. For me, creativity doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, you on on any given day, when I get home from my day job, I empty out my pockets and I find post-it notes and pieces of envelopes and little bits of paper bags that, that I've scribbled notes on. Because yeah. you know, when something comes to me, you, you grab something and you write it down, you shove it in your pocket, and you think I'll use that later. Um, but uh, what I can do, because I'm very very old school, when I write, uh, be it uh, a play or or a comedy sketch or or work on my book i um I write longhand. I have a stack of spiral notebooks on my desk that's so so heavy I'm surprised my desk hasn't collapsed under the weight of them mm-hmm. um, but what I can do, I can discipline myself to sit down for an hour or two and type up what I've written, and of course, I edit along the way as I go, yeah. But but I have to to just write when the inspiration hits. I I think otherwise you tend to force it, and that does not result in your best work. Right. Okay. Let's talk about your uh, plays. You're you're a playwright as well, and uh, you have a short play one act called "Please Please Celebrate Me, Homo." Is that correct? Did I get that right? Please celebrate. Please celebrate me, Homo. Okay. Uh, that was uh, live streamed. In performance to wonderful actors Nicholas Sloan and Anthony Nanini. It was directed by Keith Cornell. Mm-hmm. That was live streamed during uh, the December holiday season by Desert Ensemble Theater Company. Mm-hmm. They had approached me. Uh, I had written a short piece earlier uh, in 2020 during the spring called Smile for the Camera that I appeared in as well with, with uh, brilliant local actress Adina Lawson. Absolutely. She's and great. She's fabulous. I adore yeah. her. And so um, Jerome Elliott, who is the artistic director for DETC, mm-hmm. had approached me uh, about perhaps writing a a lighthearted holiday-themed vehicle, mm-hmm. because at that point we weren't sure how the election was going to turn out, because this was right. pre-election. I, I said, whatever happens, we need something that's going to be light. Right, <laughs> and, absolutely. And fun for the holidays. And and we streamed it to, to a wonderful response. I was very, very pleased with it. Uh, it, it was a shorter play. It's it's one of uh, five one-act plays that I've written, and then I have written uh, six full-length two-act plays over the years, um, the majority of which, well, actually, all six of those now, um, we have performed them with Script to Stage, Stage to Screen, screen. Okay. Uh, which you've worked with yes, yourself. great group. Uh, they are a terrific, terrific group. And my next play, which is called Inez's Birthday and Then Some, will be part of uh, 
script to stage the screen's 2021-22 season. It was supposed to be where we were going to be doing it to close out the you know 2021 season, which of course didn't happen because of the pandemic. So, right. um, looking forward to getting that on the stage. It is at, at the risk of sounding terribly immodest. It is without a doubt the best thing I've ever written for the stage. And wh- what makes you say that? I saw, I saw that, and I, you said that. I want. Why do you think that? I'm just curious. Um, I, I write comedy and, and I write comedy very well. There, there are some things in this life I do not do well. I don't, you don't want my, you don't want me on your baseball team. You don't want me to paint your house, uh, but, um, but I, but I do write comedy well. A lot of what I write tends to be very broad comedy. I was raised mm-hmm. on I Love Lucy and Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's comedy that has a broad appeal. This one, um, even though it is comedic, it has more heart, yeah. Uh, I think than than anything I've written before, and it, it truly has something to say. And uh, I I think it will it will certainly bring laughs from the audience, and um, I would not be surprised if it brings a tear or two. Okay. And it and that that was not my intention when I set out to write it. It honestly it surprised me, but um, I I even had some excellent feedback. From the uh, script to stage to screen reading committee, when they read this, uh, a couple of members of the committee got in touch with me, and they said, "We have loved everything you've written, but this tops them all. This wow. is gold." That's so great. I, I was very, very flattered, very flattered by that. So, all right. So, just want to we can recap. So that that play, uh, Inez's birthday, and then some. It's going to be part of the 2021-2022 script to stage to screen season. Your first mm-hmm. novel, Sand Drawings. People can get it on. At, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and also the Q Trading Company on Sunny Dunes Road. Is that correct? Correct. Um, and on online, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, you can get it in either print or ebook format because I know there are a lot of, a lot of e-readers out there with their Kindles and Nooks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to pick up a print copy and support a local business at the same time, then I, I absolutely encourage you to go over to Q Trading on Sunny Dunes. It's a great little shop, and they've been so kind um, to to carry my book. And I usually, if I'm over there and they have some copies in that I haven't signed, they they ask me, "Will you sign a few?" That way, they can sell it as a signed copy. Great. And now, do you have a, a website that you want to give out that so people can kind of follow along and see what you're doing next? Or I not? have a well. I have a Facebook page set up for for the book, okay. for Sand Drawings. All right. And as things progress with the next novel, I will I will put updates on there uh, regarding okay. that. And so, if you go to Facebook and uh, search Sand Drawings, a novel, okay. all one word, just Sand Drawings, a, a novel. novel. Okay. And if you scroll down through all of my posts, I I give a lot of background as to the characters in the book and the process of writing it and how certain or why certain things are, are written as they are, mm-hmm. why it's set during the time period that it is. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, insight on there. And Jason is also, we don't have a lot of time left, but he's also a singer. And I, I've run into him several times back when things were still open at the open mic at Frankie's and uh, just very talented singer as well. So how would you describe your singing style? Uh, I I have been told, and it's an accolade I am very grateful to have. I am a troubadour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a big, belty Broadway voice. I have a very soft, quiet voice. I love ballads and I love songs that tell a story. 
Mm-hmm. And there, there was a regular patron at Frankie's, a little French lady named Jacqueline, who I just adored. And she said, oh, Jason, you have such a, a troubadour voice. Do you know what that means, that you are a troubadour? <laughs> and so I thought that was, I thought that was adorable. That's and great. That, that is an accolade I will happily wear. Yeah, troubadour. And I love the, again, I love the Renaissance man. I, same thing, I, you know, I'm a singer, an actor, a radio host, I do voiceovers, I write theater reviews, I work in a book. So I love being a Renaissance person. I mean, sometimes you got to juggle the hats, and sometimes it's challenging to do that, and you, you're in the middle of ju- having one hat on, and you kind of wish you could work on another hat but i think it keeps life interesting absolutely don't you it does i've I've always said if i ever want to run away and join the circus i will be a smash as the guy who spends 10 plates on the end of sticks at one time because i've done it my whole life yeah yeah so desert skies so if you in a perfect world when when do you hope when 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 do you hope that might come out i know i know you don't rush yourself but when do you hope the new book will come out uh, well, the first one took me 15 years from start to finish. So <laughs> I don't think this one would take that long. I was going to say, if I can improve significantly on that and cut that down to maybe, you know, maybe like five years, that would be great. And, and I'm already, you know, three years into writing it. So, so. Uh, all uh, right. Well, Jason Hall, continued success. Congratulations on the first book, the second book, your plays, and all your, your singing, your troubadour voice, which is great. Thank you so much for being, for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's it's been been a delight. All right. Stay safe out there. Keep on writing, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear more from you. All right. We're going to take another break on the Culture Corner. We'll be right back in just a bit. The curtain rises on local and regional arts and entertainment. From music to theater, films to fine art, it's The Culture Corner. Get connected. Call 760-544-TALK. That's 760-544-8255. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. Well, it seems that somebody else has been outed out as not being very good and the entertainment business. Uh-oh. Now, Joss Whedon is the creator of the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is still considered by many one of the most influential, greatest television shows of all time. And it's a, basically a show about a young woman who fights off vampires, but it also dealt with important issues like sexism, mm-hmm. feminism, uh, rape culture, and e- heck, even dealt with like trauma and how people and depression it's actually the show itself actually features in my opinion one of the greatest depictions of depression on television and the show itself has always been has always been like defined by the women that Mm -hmm. created it okay but that created the characters through their performances and uh, because i know it's created by a man joss whedon Mm -hmm. and well joss whedon isn't exactly um as feminist as he likes to present himself to be. Joss Whedon for years has always presented himself as sort of like a pseudo feminist. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he had a famous quote, I write strong women, strong female characters until I don't need to say the phrase strong female characters. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, that has an age as well. But, but charisma Carpenter, who played a character named Cordelia chase on Buffy, the vampire slayer and its spinoff angel. 
actually finally decided after two decades to finally stop holding her tongue mm-hmm. and actually talk about the bad things he used to do on the set of Buffy. He would actually, uh, he actually did this thing where he um, used to blame her for this fourth season of Angel not being as successful as the first three seasons mm-hmm. because she got pregnant. Mm. So she got pregnant on the show. And what happened was that he actually called her fat. He called her and said he was she was ruining the show and that he had to kill off her character. Spoiler alert. He had to kill off her character. And she always felt that that was a punishment Mm -hmm. for her getting pregnant, even though he was all about autonomy and stuff like that. He also felt that on the show that he created a very hostile environment because he was a very... Because on the show, he wasn't just the showrunner. He was the director and writer and producer of almost every other episode. Mm-hmm. So a lot of her interactions with him were too personal. And she always felt that he was casually cruel to her. Like he would make comments about, oh, you're gaining weight or you're not exactly like doing a good job here. You mm-hmm. know, you can do better. And saying, but not saying it exactly like that, saying it really cruelly and mm-hmm. just overall being a bully on set and, and other people are now corroborating that yes, yes. Sarah Michelle Gellar the star of Buffy the Vampire mm-hmm. Slayer said I'm proud of being a- on Buffy but I'm not proud to have my name associated with Joss mm-hmm. Michelle Drachenberg who played Buffy's sister on the show who was 13 years old at the time said that one of the rules was that he was not to be left alone with her and she was very vague about it and said a lot of things happened on that set that we that are right now not going to be said but one day will be wow and that is that one was very startling to me because it's like okay now now so who made that rule whose rule was that she didn't say anything she just said there was a rule on set that he was not to be alone with her and then emma caulfield another character on buffy said that it was like that it was very harsh and like there was a lot of anger on set Mm -hmm. and uh, other actors who and the funny thing is a lot of the actors, the male actors, have actually said that they never felt like it was like that on set, but they still support Charisma Carpenter mm-hmm. and Sarah. They said, we feel bad for not acknowledging that this mm-hmm. happened. We didn't know this was happening. Mm-hmm. And it actually, and this is all because Ray Fisher, another actor on a movie called Justice League, where Joss Whedon came in as a replacement director, he actually is suing Warner Brothers or is actually in a legal dispute with Warner Brothers over the abuse that Joss Whedon imposed on him on the show. So, so he didn't just abuse women. This was all sometimes men, too. Yeah, and okay. the one thing about Ray Fisher is that he is distinguishable from the other men is that he is a man of color. He's a black man, so a lot of people are saying that his abuse seems to target black people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and women in mm-hmm. particular. And so this has been a case where a lot of Buffy fans are like they're trying they're having a hard time they're still reconciling reconciling because for them Joss Whedon gave them not only Buffy but Angel Firefly and there's Mm -hmm. even a thing called Whedon Con Mm -hmm. Joss Whedon has created an empire out of his name of TV shows that were seemingly progressive for their time Mm -hmm. and have a lot of great things in it but now it's starting to really show you that the man who created them were was not perfect and I think a great quote was Joss Whedon made it possible for made art that made it to where I don't need him anymore like it's for it he made the type of art that helped me fight against people like him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that's powerful you know if you yeah. look at it that way but I think I think it's important to support these actresses yeah yeah and that includes like you know the if you're on Twitter send a hashtag mm-hmm. I stand with charisma carpenter and stuff mm-hmm. like that but mm-hmm. 
Uh, now, is there is there, there there is some legal action in the works right now? I or? think with only with the Ray Fisher situation because okay. with the Buffy cast, it's twenty it, years ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's time for us to kind of. This is a lesson I want to tell everybody. When you watch interviews and they talk about a certain person, Charisma Carpenter always dropped hints saying that mm-hmm. she didn't like the way a person, the, her character died on the show. If you start noticing, start noticing actors. There, there's something, usually something behind that. Yeah. Like if an yeah. actor doesn't feel right about answering a question or they're hesitant to come back to a show, keep an there's eye out. There's a reason. Keep yeah. an eye out because yeah. it actually turns out that sometimes they can't say something legally yet. But down know, the road, down yeah. the road, keep an yeah. eye out for it. All right. Okay. We're going to be back with more. And we're going to be welcomed by Andy Kahn, who just wrote a book, The Most Famous Musician You've Never Heard Of. We'll talk to him in just a bit on The Culture Corner. listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Live from the desert cities of Southern California, here's Brian and Bonnie. And we are back on The Culture Corner. We're now joined by Andy Kahn. I'm going to make sure I'm saying that right, who has a book out called The Most Famous Musician You've Never Heard Of. He's a local musician and keyboardist and has worked with amazing people. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Ringo, uh, star of the Turtles. Hey, Andy, how you doing? I'm doing terrific, Bonnie. So very happy to be here on your show. Excellent. So, so tell us, gosh, there's so much to say. So was did you know that this was going to be the title of the book right away as soon as you started writing it? Well, back in 1997, I was on an um, internet television show uh, with Solar Dad O'Brien. Yes, I remember. On, yeah, it was on MSNBC. It was called The Site. Mm-hmm. And it was all about the internet and all about, you know, back in 1997. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a demo doctor website. So she had me on her show, and uh, she asked me, uh, how do you want me to introduce you? So I said, well, you can introduce me as the most famous musician you never heard of. Okay. And, that, and that's how that got started. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. So did you, where are you from originally, and did you start, uh, were you in music, start performing very young? Uh, well, my dad taught me how to play the piano when I was 10 years old. Okay. And uh, I learned how to play the Snake Charmer song with both hands playing rhythm and lead. And it was just like one lesson. And he wasn't even a musician. It was just like a hobby. But that was my first introduction to playing piano. But I always loved classical music and as a matter of fact, in 1962, I started making monster movies like Frankenstein and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and all this stuff. Uh-huh. And I would use all this wonderful classical music in the movies. It was eight millimeter sound movies. Wow. Back then. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Now, so you were born in New Rochelle, New York. So when, when, what was your first straight out playing music gig? Well, that was uh, right uh, during the time the Beatles came out on Ed Sullivan. I, I started a surf band back in New York, 
and we did surf music, and we were called the Jaguars. That's because three of the guys had Fender Jaguar guitars. Ah. So we did that. But once the Beatles came out on Ed Sullivan, I just I really got into writing a lot of songs, and I played a Farfisa organ, which had a left-hand bass, and uh, so we had a trio, drum, guitar, and organ with the bass, and a lead singer, and we were doing, we did fantastic. We played all the colleges and universities mm-hmm. and uh, country clubs and everything back in New York and Westchester County, and we won all the ballot, Battle of the Bands. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we did really well. So that was, uh, uh, and uh, then, of course, I, I became really good friends with Felix Cavalieri of the uh, the Young Rascals. Okay. And, uh and I got into the Hammond B3 organ, and uh, I was very excited about that. So when did you so, uh, when did you come from New York out here to California? Uh, in 1968, in September, uh, I uh, I stole my lead singer's girlfriend, and uh, well, that wasn't very uh, was, nice. <laughs> well, it was revenge because he stole my movie camera. Okay. So I decided to get back at him and steal his girlfriend. Okay. Anyway, so we drove out to um, L.A. and we got busted in Oklahoma for not paying at a gas station. Uh-oh. And, uh, they, you know, the uh, Oklahoma sheriff put me up against the wall and took a Polaroid picture of me and... Uh, made me cut off all my hair and my beard in the jail cell. Wow! And I spoke to the uh, I spoke to the um, uh, mayor or the the judge on the phone, and he said, "How much money you got on you, boy?" And I said, seventy five bucks." He said, "Pay the guy." And then he hung up, and then I finished my drive to California. Wow! So <laughs> tell tell us how you got. I know you have a billion stories. Tell us how you got involved with the turtles. Oh, the turtles. Well, uh, I had joined a band with Jimmy Carl Black, the Indian of the group from the Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa. And we had a band called Geronimo Black. And Jimmy was asked by Frank Zappa to be in a movie called 200 Motels. And that's when Jimmy and I drove to rehearsal uh, for the 200 motels movie and Flo and Eddie, the turtles were there. And, uh, so I met Flo and Eddie there then. And then later on at a studio called Cherokee studios, uh, I was doing overdubs for a, um, a concert tour I did with little Richard called let the good times roll. I was doing organ overdubs and Flo and Eddie were in there doing a cartoon soundtrack for their, uh, a cartoon called, Dirty Duck, and uh, their keyboard player was the engineer in the studio, so he couldn't go on the road. So uh, Mark Volman said, hey, Andy, are you available? And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. So back in 1973, that was the year I joined the Turtles. Okay, and I know you've got a, a lot of and you got a lot of uh, questions here. I'm going to go through a couple of these. So I do want to know why Chubby Checker of the Twist fame, uh, with one point, chased you around a hotel lobby. What was that about? <laughs> we played a concert in Las Vegas with 
Felix Cavalieri and Chubby Checker. And it was a wonderful show. Uh, the promoter requested that we dress up in hippies, you know, dot tie dye and yeah. hippies make us look like hippies. So we did a show. It was wonderful. The next morning in the lobby of the hotel, we were checking out and paying our uh, incidentals and all that. And uh, Chubby Checker was with his mother, and his mother was in a wheelchair. So Chubby was at the end of the lobby, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and then he has this real maniacal look on his face, and he starts pushing his mom in the wheelchair at full speed toward me, and he tried to run me over with the wheelchair. And uh, so uh, as he passed by me, him and his mom were laughing, and so I almost got ran over by Chuppy Checker and his mom okay, in a well, wheelchair. That's a little weird. All right, how about, how about jamming with Jimi Hendrix? What was that like? Uh, I, I, I was a gopher for a record company in L.A. called Pulsar Records, and uh, uh, the artists on the label were Graham Bond, who had uh, the Graham Bond organization with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce before the cream. And uh, so uh, I would take Graham to all these recording sessions. And one day Graham says, come on, we're going to do a jam session. Bring your harpsichord. So I picked Graham and his wife up and we went to the studio and I was setting up my harpsichord and there was Lowell George from Little Feet playing the flute and Jack Cassidy from the Jefferson Airplane was on the bass and Mitch Mitchell uh, was on the drums and Graham Bond was on the uh, organ and I was setting up the harpsichord and I felt a weird, weird feeling behind me and I turn around and in walks Jimi Hendrix with two blonde chicks one carrying his amplifier and one carrying his guitar. And he set up right next to me, literally wow. a foot away. And uh, we jammed the blues in the key of A for two hours. Wow. So I was sitting right next to Hendrix in, uh, you know, two weeks after I moved to L.A. My goodness. And, uh, yeah. And uh, then at the end of the day, uh, end of the recording session, we stood in the corner of the room and sh and smoked a joint. And this roadie guy joined us. So the three of us were smoking a joint in the corner of the room. Then Hendrix started to sing guitar parts with his mouth. You know, doo -doo -doo. Yeah. Yeah. and then I started to pretend I was the drums. So I started to go, and then the, the other guy was playing bass with his mouth. Mm -hmm. So we were a power trio smoking the joint in the corner of the studio, playing music with our mouths. Wow. So okay. that, I, I really wish I had a camera then. <laughs> so tell me about moving into becoming an uh, entrepreneur, launching your own record label and your own demo production company. How did that happen? Uh, well, the record label happened because uh, I put together an album for Rhino Records. And it was called The Grandmothers. 
because I was friends with all the original members of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carl Black, Bunk Gardner, Roy Estrada, uh, Buzz Gardner, Elliot Ingber, Don Preston, all these original members. And I put out an album called The Grandmothers, and it sold more than any other album on Rhino Records. And uh, I took the money from that, and I started my own record company. And I would put out die-cut picture disc mm. with white vinyl or green vinyl or, you know. Mm-hmm. So I put out a, a panda picture disc. I put out a Halloween witch picture disc. And I put out a picture disc by the leaves in the shape of a leaf. Okay. And they had a a song called Hey Joe back in uh, 1968 or something like that. Okay, my co-host Brian has a question for you. You know, I, I actually am really impressed by your career you have. You've worked with Little Richard, The Turtles, uh, Geronimo Black, uh, <clears throat> my bad, Geronimo Black, Linda Ronstadt, but you know what? I was When I was doing research, I saw that you used to do um, keyboards for some of the Care Bears music. I wanted to know about that. I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Tell us about that. Yes. Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, Flo and Eddie, the Turtles, uh, the three of us used to hang out in their office and uh, smoke a gigantic uh, cigar joint and play Casio keyboards, you know, and just jam. And so... Uh, 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 Kids Stuff Records hired Mark and Howard to do Strawberry Shortcake, The Care Bears, and G.I. Joe. So they hired me to be the music director for the recording session, so I hired all the musicians, and we, we did um, a whole bunch of uh, recordings, cartoon soundtrack. You That's know, great. Care Bears. Yeah, G.I. Joe and uh, Strawberry Shortcake. Now, where can people get your book, uh, Andy, The Most Famous Musician You've Never Heard Of? Where can people get it? Well, it's on Amazon, uh, but it's very, very easy to, to find me. All you have to do is Google The Most Famous Musician You've Never Heard Of, and it'll take you to all these websites. One of them is called Best Classic Bands. And my editor, Jeff Tamarkin, is the editor of that website. So he did a a sample chapter from my book, uh, which features uh, Harry Nielsen, Ringo Starr, uh, uh, Timothy Leary, Joe Walsh, and some others. All right. uh, and check it out. Check out the book, The Most Famous Musician You've Never Heard of, Andy Kahn, spelled C-A-H-A-N. I know we can have you on again for six times to tell stories. Thank you so much for being here. Continued success with your book and everything. Well, thank you very much, and please send my love to Sharon DeHayworth. I sure, I sure will. She's my, she's my soul sister. All right, Andy Kahn, thank you so much. We'll be back with more on The Culture Corner. You're listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza, talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Here are Bonnie and Brian. Hey, welcome back to The Culture Corner. So we're going to end on Britney Spears. Now, Britney Spears has been the subject of a documentary on Hulu. Present. It's actually not... 
when you type it on Hulu, it's not going to say framing Britney Spears. You're going to the first thing you, when you type that in is the New York Times presents. That's actually where it's at. New York Times presents on Hulu, and the sixth episode is framing Britney Spears. Yeah, and it, is this new? It just came out recently. Yes. Okay. It just came out pretty recently, and I think it's a wonderful documentary. I think it's a really good piece about the free Britney movement, which is again a movement to free to liberate Britney from her conservatories uh, conservatorship from, from her, her father, father who yeah. is who f- the documentary made very clear has never had much of a presence in her career except recently when to she to take over stuff to take over yeah. stuff and this happened and she's been under this thing since 2008 and this documentary is so insightful because you get to look back at how a lot of things that we did a lot of jokes we made like there was a whole thing on family feud of what did britney lose this year and one of the jokes was her mind Mm -hmm. and her hair and stuff like that and it's it did a good job of contextualizing how our society didn't have enough empathy for Mm -hmm. uh, britney spears which ultimately led to her situation which is she is in a situation in a problematic situation where she wants to get out of a conservatorship but she can't now my question for you do you know what is her mental state at the moment is she kind of stable she have the kids with her i'm not sure on what's what's happening with that her kids are older so for that i think she visits her kids a lot still she's always had visitation rights so the father has the kid her her the father of the kids has the kids okay yes and the other thing is that she has actually got out of her way to boycott her own self because she actually said i will not perform music unless my father is taken out of the conservatorship Mm -hmm. and so i believe her mental state is that she actually can finally consent and say no i don't want this Mm -hmm. but i think there's a lawyer on there that said that it's very difficult to get out of situations like that because those are usually reserved for the elderly or Mm -hmm. people who are severely incapable of taking care of themselves but this is a case where this woman clearly wants to get out of her situation and knows what she's I, I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I just saw something recently that that she won, that the father is no longer, is that true or am I? It's a little bit more complicated. Okay. Her father can't object to her wanting to get out, but he is not out yet. He is okay. not out. There is a possibility of him being out, but he is actually having, he has to share the role of her conservator with a bank the bank that she wanted Mm -hmm. to have she doesn't she doesn't want to get out of it she just doesn't want her father in charge of it she wants a bank to be in charge of it what is so is this the kind of thing where she has to document like get doctors something to prove that she's stable and can take care of her own affairs i believe so it's actually like one of those things where like i don't know much about how to get out of a conservatorship Mm -hmm. the fact is that it's so difficult to do so because Mm -hmm. the fact is once you're in it and they it's, prove you that you need to be in it. Yeah. It's very hard to hard get out to of get it. Out. Yeah, it's kind of like if you go to a mental hospital and you st- and you're checked in involuntarily. It's very hard to get out of that, mm-hmm. you know. And the fact that she even thought she needed it at first that doesn't set a good case for her. So in the beginning, she agreed to this at some point. She agreed early to it. On? She yeah. agreed to it, but she didn't want her father to do it. And she had a lawyer. Uh-huh. And in the documentary, they made it clear. The lawyer said. She, the lawyer had been told that there was a document that proved that Britney wasn't stable, but he was never shown this document, mm. so he was fired from the case. Mm. Because Not from Britney. He was actually fired mm-hmm. by the judge. The judge said, okay. we're going to have to get her a different lawyer because we don't trust her you. judgment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. 
and it actually and she, and he actually said that he, in her, in, her, in his interactions with her that he felt that she was stable enough to make decisions mm-hmm. and that she was smart enough to realize that she needs help mm-hmm. but that she didn't but she was smart enough to but she was also aware enough to know what kind of help she needed and yeah. the documentary shows that she wasn't really she she dropped hints here and there that she didn't want to be under the control of her father yeah. The, uh, yeah. in that sense so her father has to share the role with um with an, with the bank mm-hmm. but that the battle is still drawing itself out let's talk about um justin timberlake has come out and apologized and then the diane sawyer stuff talk a little bit about that so in looking at the documentary it kind of recontextualizes a lot of the media coverage it even gave a really good the background to that famous photo of her being bald with mm-hmm. the umbrella showing that it, the guy was on there saying that he did instigate her, that he did go out of his way to instigate her. Mm-hmm. And Diane Sawyer actually did an interview where she basically brought up that the that the wife of a governor at the time had said she wanted to shoot Britney Spears. And Britney Spears was upset about it. Very, mm-hmm. I, Like for me, I wouldn't want someone to say, I want yeah, to shoot you. Somebody wants to shoot you. Yeah, hello. And Diane Sawyer said, well, you know, she's only saying that because she wants to protect your kids and you're not necessarily a good role model. And a lot of Britney Spears fans were mad at that interview. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, Diane Sawyer shouldn't be saying stuff like that. Yeah. And it's like one of those things where like when you're an interviewer, I think one of the things that we do well is that we don't bring up the bad, you know. And I think when you interview people, you try to you be ambush them. Yeah. You yeah. try to be empathetic. Yeah. Even if they do something wrong, you still mm-hmm. try to see it from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Like Britney Spears had gone through a lot of mental anguish, like being chased around by the paparazzi yeah. that will ruin I'm your sure mental that'll health. Get to. Yeah. Talk about Justin Timberlake. Cause and, they had an intense relationship for a while there. And Justin Timberlake, that situation was bad because, um, in the documentary, they showed that he would go around acting like a jock saying stuff like, yeah, I F Britney when he got interviewed because yeah. Britney tried to really say like, you know, I was a virgin and all yeah. that. And that was something personal to her. And yeah. he basically made jokes and, and he did a whole music video where he paints a Britney Spears as a cheater. Mm-hmm. He even has a stunt double with blonde long hair like she mm-hmm. does doing stuff. And so he actually finally apologized for it 15 years after the fact. And his mm-hmm. apology was towards Britney and Janet saying that he's participated in the the culture misogynistic culture. And a lot of fans, you know, I'm going to be honest, like looking thinking about it, it is good that he apologized. But you know what? He still benefited from the bad things he did. Mm-hmm. And it's and the fact that he didn't go out of his way to give Janet Jackson a platform to come back to the Super Bowl and that she suffered for it, you yeah. know, or, yeah. and that Britney Spears, her career and her image suffered a lot because of that. So for me, it's a little too late and I don't think we need a documentary to get an apology. You know what I yeah. mean? Like I get that it's important to have an apology, but you know what? You know who really, who, you know who deserved that apology? Britney Spears yeah. and Janet yeah. Jackson. So what the upshot of the documentary, what does it kind of leave you with? Does it leave you with feeling, well, you know, empathy for her and that she's okay now? Is that what you take away from it? You take away from that, but you also take away from the fact that maybe we as a culture... Should look at ourselves. We look at ourselves and realize that we're complicit in how people get treated badly, that maybe mm-hmm. Britney Spears would have actually had a better life if we didn't buy the U.S. Weekly magazines right. where she was in a bad situation. Maybe when we buy when we buy magazines or we look at articles, click the articles that 
are informed, not the ones that are sensational. Yeah. I think it's important yeah. to be wise in our spending because we never know who we're going to hurt in the yeah. long run. Absolutely. You got to take, the, you know, actions have consequences. Words have consequences. All right. Brian Mendoza, thank you. Another good show on the Culture Corner. Please stay safe out there. Uh, you know, if we're not over with this pandemic. We've got vaccines, but stay safe. Wear your mask. See you next week. <laughs>